Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Vital Descent. I'm your host, Patrick McFarlane. This one is episode 243. Show notes may be found at vitaldescent.com forward slash 243. And I'm very glad to be joined by Richard Cox on the show. Richard, how's it going? Hi, good. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Yeah, so you you are the co-host um, with Adam Fitzgerald, who's a, a favorite guest on this podcast here. And I'm really glad that you you would approach me with an email because I had mentioned I was going to do like a deep dive on Kosovo and kind of the history behind uh, Yugoslavia and the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 90s. And um, you had mentioned that you and, and Adam had covered this in a series of podcasts maybe a couple of years ago. And uh, I really appreciate you offering to help me tackle this because as as we were talking about before we went on uh, on the microphone, we went live you were saying that this is one of the most complicated uh, geopolitical topics to cover. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that. Well, I hope you appreciate it by the end. <laughs> I've just made a, a hash of it because it's, yeah, I, I did. I wrote that email in a sense as an opportunity to get back into this study of Yugoslavia, which is a good thing to do because, yeah, we picked it up in the series with Adam, which was a Roads to 9-11 series. And I don't know if I knew prior to talking to Adam why Yugoslavia was relevant to 9-11. But that was a, a chance for me to jump into it four years ago then. And I suppose that comes out of something of a childhood curiosity, because when I was a, a boy, the two big interventions were in Iraq, where we're going to liberate the Kuwaitis from the evil Saddam Hussein. And that, that seemed to make sense. And the other, perhaps even more noble aspiration was to bring peace and harmony to this disintegrating Yugoslavia, because um, because there was no oil interest there or anything. There's just nothing in it. And that's what the media told us. So there was just nothing in it at all for the West. No self-interest whatsoever. All about helping out those pure, poor, blighted people there. So um, that that led a certain curiosity to me. Thought, okay, well, as I became more interested in maybe a slightly more cynical view of Western foreign policy, what really happened there? What was it all about? Yeah, and but before we before I guess we really dive into the topic, I'll just ask you to you know introduce yourself, just kind of a, a bit of a background, tell the audience who you are and where you're coming from, and kind of about your work more generally. Yeah, so I run I run a podcast myself, the Deep State Consciousness Podcast, which kind of evolved with no clear direction. It was just me deciding I had interesting friends and I should interview them, and then I ran out of friends, so I started interviewing other people, and eventually um, I. I met Adam, Adam Fitzgerald, and we started doing a lot of geopolitical podcasting together, initially around 9-11, and we've branched out. And Adam now has his quite specific 9-11 uh, podcast, The Dark and Hour, which I, I help out on, and I'm a junior partner there. Um, and, and that's it. So on, on the podcast, I call it themes like anarchism. I wrote a book on anarchism last year, with, yeah, just last year, went to the new year, uh, The Essence of Anarchy. And I like to look at geopolitical uh, questions. Uh, but also from a kind of philosophical perspective of sometimes asking where's the line if you look at history between sensible geopolitical analysis and where do we drop off into conspiracy theorizing so i'm currently going through uh, i wrote a book on conspiracy theory last year the sort of philosophy of it and i'm currently going through 20th century history uh, the rise of the american empire theodore roosevelt and the first world war then the u.s intervention into that and the kind of world order that emerges out of that treading that line i think between sensible analysis and these kind of deeper questions which may be a conspiratorial or maybe it's where we need to be going about things like the anglo-american establishments that that's my kind of areas of interest and what i explore over on my own podcast yeah i think that's it, it's sorely needed too because speaking from my own personal experience you know getting involved in this space and getting interested in these topics 
it's really when when you're first in it, you're kind of impressionable and you're a little bit naive. And I think your eyes get open to a lot of things and the mind tends to jump to conclusions or to make these associations where maybe uh, the associations are a bit tenuous and you just you play jury in your mind, judge, jury and executioner. And to have people that can influence you and kind of lead you on that journey in a, a responsible way, because mm. I, I think. There are, of course, there are things that are conspiracies and there are things that happen behind the scenes, um, but it discredits the true things that happen to have people out there who are irresponsible with jumping to conclusions and, and making associations where the evidence just isn't there. Yeah, and for me, I felt it's important that people who are coming from an anti-war perspective, an anti-imperial perspective, to own that space, okay, and own the space of trying to demark and understand what our positions are based upon and where it goes into kind of fringe or fantasical or even mythological thinking and not leave that space to people who want to use conspiracy theory and weaponize it as a way to say, this is all nonsense, nothing to see here, trust your government citizen. Right. It's good for the kind of radicals to own the, own the space of where's the acceptable limit. Yeah, definitely agreed. And I, from a more, I guess, selfish perspective, myself being a libertarian, uh, in the libertarian anti-war space, there's a general feeling that, you know, we need to establish ourselves as being the the people that own the space, at least for from the liberty perspective. And so uh, definitely agree with you there. Um, so mo turning toward the, the topic of Kosovo and the breakup of, of Yugoslavia, I think it's it's so important to for people to understand this, because most Americans, at least Americans of my generation, don't think about it at all. Of course, the 90s are really just overshadowed by the events of September 11th. Mm. And we forget about, um, you know, everything that happened before then in the 90s are really considered, I mean, aside from Iraq War One, they're considered to be, I guess, not as much as the 80s, but a period where the United States wasn't involved in these foreign wars. And I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of regular Americans who don't know much of anything. Um, and so the, the way it became relevant to me and why I wanted to cover it is because just recently there has been uh, tensions rising between Serbia and Kosovo again. And to set the stage, uh, the, you know, basically from a, a 10,000 feet, the United States intervened in basically what was a civil war in the breakup of um, of a country in the 90s. And they intervened against Serbia, who was trying to rein in an errant part of Serbia, Kosovo, um, or an errant part of Yugoslavia. Um, it gets really technical. But mm. we instigated a NATO US-led bombing campaign in, in the late 90s um, in order to intervene in that conflict. And in 2008, Kosovo declares independence officially, and the NATO countries recognize that independence, uh, but many countries across the world, including Russia, didn't. And historically, Russia was on the side of Serbia. And so where this comes into being now is that essentially with, with the war in Ukraine going on, ten tensions are flaring up in Serbia again, or they did, and there was the... Serbian army was activated and was on standby, possibly a war might have broken out or could have broken out between Serbia and Kosovo that NATO would have gotten involved in, presumably, and that Russia would have gotten involved in, 
possibly. And it could have really opened a new front in kind of the global Cold War that we're in right now. So, Richard, is um, are, do you take umbrage with my recounting or nitpicking? No, them? no, I think it's exactly right that the interventions of the 90s have set up a continuous implied NATO presence in both Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo. And that could activate at any time. There's kind of a Pax Americana, I suppose, that in some way stops these things breaking out. But if there's ever any weakness in that, ethnic tension could just flare up there again in an instant. You, you would think that would be the case at some point in the future, that there's going to be challenges. And right now, it seems to be hot for it in both of those places. And, and I really identified, go, you know, there's such an extensive history here that, you know, we're just going to scratch the surface on here today. And And for people who know nothing about this, as I knew very little about it, you know, even a month ago, um, to, to kind of get that, it's it's so complicated. But as I was going through it, I noticed so many parallels to the situation in Ukraine, especially with this ethnic divide. Um, not to say that Ukraine w was constituted the same way that Yugoslavia was, but this this idea of sections of the country seceding, but there being minorities within the seceding part who don't want to go along with that secession. And I, the parallel is with, you know, in 2014 with the Maidan coup, uh, the Donbass seceding from Ukraine, not wanting to go along with that. And, and so there's just similarities there. Yeah, and it really makes me think about this idea of secession, really, because I think it's in some ways the most interesting political idea out there, because we're not going to live in Ankapistan anytime in the next two to three weeks. So I think in some ways, the way you could see liberty achieved is this concept of a Europe of a thousand Liechtensteins, where some would be utterly communist, but some really would be tending towards Ankapistan. However, secessionist movements have all this problem, right? That as soon as you secede, there's a block in the new country that doesn't want to, and it's going to either break off or join the previous one, and then that secedes, and well, that creates a new block. So it's also a recipe for endless conflict. So just on that kind of philosophical point, it, it, I suppose the breakup of Yugoslavia makes me question how secession could be a, a healthy thing, how it could be achieved in a healthy way. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And more parallels I identified was, you know, of course, within Kosovo itself. Um, so in the same way that, right, Ukraine is the native home maybe of the Rus people, where, where the Russian empire really started in Kiev and then they were driven out and they settled around Moscow. And so a lot of Russians see Kiev as being their, the home of their state. Um, in the same way, Serbians see Kosovo as the home of their people in their state. A lot of their, I don't know, founding holy lands are, they exist in Kosovo. And so when Kosovo was settled and conquered by, by ethnic Albanian Muslims, uh, there, there were a lot of Kosovar, or excuse me, there were a lot of Serbians who were still in Kosovo, who who identified as Serbian and didn't want to go along with the secession. And a lot of the tension goes, um, a lot of the tension revolves around the treatment of ethnic Serbians that are still living in Kosovo. And and the same was true of Bosnia, uh, which was another part of Yugoslavia. Uh, a bit earlier in the 90s, there were a series of wars uh, along the the breakup of of Yugoslavia itself, and so I I really saw that parallel between the Serbians and and Kosovo and the Russians in Kiev and Ukraine. Yeah. So how do you want, do you want to just 
cover the history of Yugoslavia for a moment. I, I think so people, we should. Yeah, and I'll, I'll bring yeah. up I'll bring up the map so people can really um, kind of wrap their head around this. Um, so here we go. I, I guess let's go back to um, you know the formation of Yugoslavia itself. Yeah, the country comes together after the First World War. So you've got the Ottoman Empire, which is on the losing side and retreating out of Europe. And that's been, I think Serbia became independent sometime in the 1870s. And then on the other side, the Austrian Empire collapses, and that leaves Croatia now separate. And the concept behind Yugoslavia is a union of the South Slavic people. And this is an idea that goes back to the 1700s, the idea that we, the South Slavs, are always being pushed around by these big imperial forces, East and West. But if we had a unity, if we could come together as one, we could build something that would stand up to them. And that idea wins out. But there's also, of course, like a separatist nationalist current there of the, the Croats who want to go their own way, the Slovenians who want to go their own way, and maybe think that Yugoslavia is just Serbs' oppression of them now. They're, they're the new masters. So there's that tension inherent within it. And it goes along to the Second World War, where Hitler initially signs a, a peace agreement with them because he needs to cover his southern flank to go into Russia. Um, and that then falls apart. There's a British-induced coup, and Hitler allies with the nationalist Croats, who engage in massive levels of ethnic cleansing against the Serbs. Hundreds of thousands die. There's a particularly brutal concentration camp there. And even the Nazis were kind of shocked in the, the way Croats went uh, uh, about the violence uh, against the Serbs. Stuff that it sounds like propaganda. It sounds like competitions to see how many throats you could cut in one night. I'm sorry to be disgusting, but oh. it sounds like oh, this must be made up. But it seems there's this level of ethnic hatred emerged. And it comes the other way too. There are nationalist Serbs who are ethnically cleansing areas of, of um, Croats as they're fighting the Nazis. They're spending more time doing that. Eventually, it's the communist partisans that win, win out and free the country from Hitler's fascism. And out of that, uh, Josef Broz, or better known as Tito, emerges as the leader. And he really rules the country then from the end of the Second World War up until his death in 1980. Somehow, out of all this violence, they managed to form a country which is seemingly reasonably functioning. And I think there's, there's a strong left-right divide here, because a lot of the people who are very interested in Yugoslavia uh, on the anti-war side are coming from a very left-wing perspective. And they see it as a worker's paradise. They see this mixed economy where the state had a hand in the factories. There was um, factories would be worn, run on the basis of votes from workers. And so that they have a very positive view of this being kind of idyllic. And a more kind of economically free market critique would be that actually it was all just fueled as a debt bubble. The West would put money in to sustain it because it was a bulwark against uh, Russia. So Yugoslavia is non-aligned. Tito told Stalin to go do one. And... Um, threatened to have him assassinated when Stalin sent assassins uh, into Belgrade. So he really stood up to Stalin. And whilst the West, obviously the CIA, does not like non-aligned countries at all, but they thought if they threw Yugoslavia up in the air, it would probably land on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. So they left it alone and Western money came pouring in. When interest rates shot up in 1980, the same year Tino died, really, uh, there's a double blow. The figurehead is gone. And also now Yugoslavia cannot repay its debts. And it starts to go into really a debt spiral, which brings in the IMF, which starts Im imposing its um, austerity measures. And I think here you have agreement between left and right, maybe for slightly different reasons, that the IMF's policies were the foundation of the breakup of Yugoslavia, because they start cutting all the social services back and at the same time raising taxes. So now, uh, where people used to have a good standard of living, suddenly 
they start asking questions like, well, why, why am I a Slovene? Why am I a Croat paying all this money when I don't get my services anymore? And it's going down to the poorer provinces like Kosovo. So you also have politicians then who are trying to make names for themselves. Slobodan Milosevic is amongst them for really fueling ethnic hatred in and using it as a, to, a way to, to step up the political ladder. And you have this rise of nationalist ideology uh, in Croatia and Slovenia. Um, and in Serbia too, I suppose, that the, here you get a bit of a chicken and egg thing as to who was the first, who was really the first person to, to rise the nationalist stakes that set everything else off. And I think people tend to start their Yugoslavia stories depending on who they want to blame. Because if you want to think the Croats are to blame for it all, you say, well, well, they started arming themselves and tried to secede and then the Serbs defended themselves. But if you want to think the Serbs, you say, well, the Serbs became belligerent first and that drove the Croats in that direction. Um, but ultimately, the, um, the Croats and the, the Slovenians secede. The Slovenia is ethnically very homogenous, so that went without too much trouble, just a 10-day war. And Croatia um, has a huge Serb population. So the Serbs said, well, if you can secede from Yugoslavia, we will secede from Croatia. And then you have a, a disagreement around, do these um, nations secede on national borders or on ethnic borders? And there's, and there's no obvious answer to that, right? So it leads to um, just fantastic levels of violence and ethnic cleansing. And the, uh, that then flows into Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, with similar results. Now, the international angle on this the sort of anti-imperialist line would be that the United States is in the background along with with European powers encouraging this. So the, the US ambassador to Yugoslavia, uh, Warren Zimmerman, interesting character, um, he when when the Croatians start importing weapons from Hungary and probably Germany, um, he suggests that the US government would be very, very unhappy if the Yugoslav central government went in and took the weapons off them. So if you can look at that and say it's fermenting a war, similar in um, in Bosnia, when uh, Alia Izbegovic um, comes to a peace agreement to divide Bosnia into cantons where people can kind of live peacefully. Um, he then has a meeting. Everyone agrees on this. And he then has, Izabekovic is the Muslim leader there. He has a, a, a meeting with uh, Warren Zimmerman. He walks out of the meeting and says the deal's off. And he was basically, it was, it was indicated to him that if he just declared independence and tried to take over, he would get support from the US in some way, which they did by allowing um, the Mujahideen to come in. They used their this is where it links into 9-11, because some of the players there were, were in Yugoslavia at the time. So the, this, the CIA and the Pentagon stopped facilitating the importation of radical Islamists into, uh, into Bosnia then and start training and funding them. And they act as like shock troops. Uh, so it, then, then it's, it's on. It's full-blown civil war now as, as the country breaks up. Yeah, and there, there's a whole lot to unpack there. And, and I think you did a great job summing up, you know, what six or seven decades of history here, um, but it's it, to go back to like the the kind of where where Russia ties into this, you know, after World War II, that you have these these communist partisans really being the force that defeats and expels the Nazis. Uh, but the the other connection here to to where Russia comes into it is that the Russian people are Slavic as well. And I think, I mean, is it fair to say that they see, uh, they see the Southern Slavs as being brothers in a way? Historically, yeah, I think there's um, a certain internal pressure in Russia to look after the Southern Slavs. And you take this back to the First World War, that it starts off because of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Bosnia. Austria are very unhappy with the, um, the way the Serbians are examining the issue and they don't think they're going to get much justice there. So they want to go in and take take over the police investigation and Russia to, oh, we are the defenders of the Serbs. So 
uh, we, we, we can't allow this at all. So they come to the very, very cynically, I think, come to the Serbs' aid at that point because they know it's going to spark a wider war and that they're going for the, um, uh, for the Straits uh, by Turkey there so they can get access to the Black Sea. But yeah, um, cynically and also probably uncynically, yeah, they, the Russians do see themselves as the defenders of the, of the Slavic people being Slavs themselves, yeah. Now, the, the Croat, is it fair to say, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but is it fair to say that the Slovenes, the Croats, and the Serbs are all Slavs? Yeah, they are. And, yeah. And then the Bosnians and the Albanians are more Muslims. Uh, the Bosnians are Muslims, but they're Muslim Slavs. So I think a lot of the Muslims in Bosnia are actually Serbs. So, and this is where it gets complex. So the Croats are Catholics. Okay. okay, and the Catholic Church was like really backing their um, genocide in the 1940s. That's that's another factor. Right. The um, the Serbs are Eastern Orthodox, and a lot of the Bosnians are Muslims, but they 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 are converts to Islam. Um, so they're European Muslims essentially. They're converts because when the Ottoman Empire went in, it was easier to be a Muslim essentially. So that, that's the the breakup. But it, it gets more complicated because at some point Muslim became considered to be an ethnic group just to balance up the tables in there. So that's uh, yeah, there's ethnic and ethnicities, and also a religion that is considered an ethnic group. Yeah, and in where this ties back into the 1500s, and we'll just go there briefly, is that there there was a great battle that took place in Kosovo between the Serbians and the Albanian Muslims. Is that correct to say? Yeah, Ottoman Empire came in in it's 1389, and Kosovo is no, it literally means in 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 the Slavic language the field of the black birds, and that's like a big thing in uh, in Serbian identity that they had, even though they lost, that they made this heroic stand against the mighty Ottoman Empire in Kosovo. And yeah, as you say, it's like their, their cultural homeland with all the, the monasteries that go back to the Middle Ages and that kind of thing. So uh, they were very attached to it. Uh, but also there was just a rising Albanian population there. That, so the, 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 demogra- the demographic shifted throughout the 20th century there. I guess for for Americans to visualize this this battle of uh, the battle of the the field of blackbirds happened it was like it was like the Alamo kind of like yes. that and the Alamo times I don't know three thousand for these people for the Serbians and uh, another thing uh, another thing that flared up tensions and has in the last few decades and one thing that yeah, of course, J- Justin Raimondo wrote extensively about this conflict in the 90s, and I'll include a link if you go to his archives at antiwar.com. Uh, you can see what he called to be his war journal. Um, let's see here. And so all of his his works from that time are linked here, uh, and I'll include a link. It's it's not a straightforward link. It's like antiwar.com forward slash Justin forward slash justinarchives.html. And so if you go back, you can read you know, all of his almost daily columns from that time chronicling the the NATO intervention. And so another thing I wanted to tie in more personally for this audience and for me being the Justin Raimondo Fellow at the Libertarian Institute was the birth of antiwar.com really happening during this intervention and the coverage. And um, if you go back and listen to the interview that I did with Eric Garris, um, you'll hear how, you know, how intimate and integral the the, the NATO intervention in Kosovo was to the founding of antiwar.com. And so I was writing a piece and I'm still trying to write a piece where it said like, basically the title of the piece is Justin had a piece before he died. And a few months before he died called in the beginning, there was Kosovo. And I wanted to write a piece called um, 
does it all end in Kosovo? Talking about essentially, you know, antiwar.com began in Kosovo. World War One began in, Co- well, not Kosovo, but in, in, um, in, was it in Belgrade? No, it wasn't Belgrade. Yeah. Sarajevo. Well, yeah, but it, but also it was the the Austrians going into Belgrade, so it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and so, but tying it into World, I mean World War Three. I'll I'll call it just offhandedly. Like, does does an actual another conflict in in Kosovo in Serbia kick off World War Three and and tie that all together? Because there's so many of these parallels that are just so interesting. Um, well, and a kind of mirroring there, interestingly, yeah. is I, did, I hadn't realized that anti-war was so connected to Yugoslavia and, and Kosovo, and anti-war's right, but it's also really the rise of the doctrine of humanitarian intervention. Right, okay, yeah. Like, obviously that had been around before, back in the, the days of the Spanish-American War, that was the justification, but it really became codified almost as this new reason, if you read like Samantha Power's book, uh, it's, it's the failings of Rwanda and the failings to stop the massacre masculine ethnic cleansing genocide whatever you would call it at uh, Srebrenica and then the, the the apparent success of the NATO mission in Bosnia and the apparent success of the of the mission in Kosovo uh, for protecting the Albanian people that launches this idea that we can go out onto the world stage confident in a monopolar world order the US can act to stop atrocities because uh, certainly uh, I mean, the, the people like Samantha Power um, in her book uh, what is it the problem from hell uh, and the humanitarian intervention crowd don't see this the way Justin Raimondo sees it. They see this as a, a thriving success, a wonderful humanitarian endeavor that saved hundreds of thousands of people and stood up to and said no to brutal, violent dictators. And you're not going to get away with this in the future. So it, it's interesting that both those things spawned uh, very strongly from Yugoslavia. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I failed to mention it. But um, I was going to write about, I mean, that's part of my column is too that I'm working on that's just taking forever because uh, I feel like I need to know everything there is to know about something before I write about it, which really like gets in the way of putting things out. Um, but the other part of that too, Richard, is is uh, the beginning of, I mean, really the hallmark, the high, not the high water mark, but of of NATO not being a defensive alliance anymore. In that really, really marking NATO's expanse eastward, and I know there were there were things that precipitated um, this that happened before the the NATO intervention in Kosovo. But at that point in time, it really was um, more so of the mask coming off in a way. And so soon after the fall of the USSR, I mean, it's only what nine. Well, NATO began intervening in like nineteen. 19- 94 right with in bosnia was that the first intervention yeah there were un peacekeepers before that but that was the i mean depends it kind of depends officially yes but the the cia and the pentagon were shipping the radical islamists in all that and they were making sure the creations were well supplied as well and there was more than i think the europeans that supplying the creations but the u.s army then got involved in training them for this operation storm where they would ethnically cleanse croatia of serbs so there was covertly they were involved all along. And of course, if you want to go back a bit further, you could say that the whole thing's a, a planned takedown. So you take out all the uh, state-run apparatus of the economy and, and Western firms can go in and buy it up for pennies on the dollar then. So yeah, it's hard to put an exact start point. But yeah, officially, that's right, yeah. No, I think that's great. I um, And so then going back to 
books. So I, I read, uh, to, was it To Kill a Nation, that one of the book suggestions that you you gave to me. Mm. I, I only made it about halfway through before, you know, we, we had our record time. Uh, but it seems like, at least from the other perspective, and, and the author, I believe, of that book, is he's a professor in the United States. But I think he has more of, of a take on, or there was another... Um, there was another documentary that you suggested to me too that I, I watched. Uh, uh, probably Weight of Chains. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and that seemed like I mean it was actually made by a Serb, and so mm. there's this huge demonization in the West of the Serbs, especially in that conflict, as being the only perpetrators of ethnic cleansing. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everything that that happened there was you know all hunky dory, but it does seem like. A lot of the Serbian atrocities were uh, put out of context either or lied about or exaggerated. And again, I'm not saying that nothing bad happened, uh, but there were all sides that were committing uh, atrocities in, in this conflict. Um, but it, it, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I'm, to me, this is the most difficult area of it. When I look, I tend to think that... The, the complaints about the Serbs are probably more true in terms of, like, I know the people back 20 years ago, perhaps quite rightly, questioned the numbers at Srebrenica, where the Serbs are meant to have killed 8,000. I, I could be dead wrong about this, and, and maybe one of your audience will tell me why, but I tend to think the further investigations and DNS, DNA testing has, has indicated that there was kind of a, a high body count there, and, and the Serbs did go wild. And that would be in keeping with, like, well, Yugoslav history and... Um, in general, what was going on. It is certainly the case that Croats engaged in massive levels of, of ethnic cleansing too. 200,000 Serbs were driven out of Croatia. And there's a lot of obfuscation around this, right? Like the Croats would say, well, we didn't drive those people out. The Serb military told them to go. So, was, But you don't have to kill that many people before the rest of the population gets the message of what's coming for them and they flee, right? So these things are obfuscated. So um, I do, yeah, I do think there was like an incredible level of violence uh, going on there. The, what, one of the things that brought NATO in were there were like three bombing incidents in, um, in markets in, Sar in a market in Sarajevo. And there's certainly, I think, credible reason to believe that they could have been false flags carried out by the Mujahideen fighters, maybe, because uh, it's just the timing of them. You know, a bit like the, the gas in Syria, that like, well, this is the line. If you cross this line, right. um, at the same time, the Serbs were shelling Sarajevo heavily. So I don't want to uh, abscond them of, of blame for that. They were they were entirely brutal. Yeah. And the you know, we're talking about um, certain Mujahideen groups, too, as well. What is what is is there any relation between that and the Kosovo Liberation Army that was supported by the United States? Are they one in the same or is that two different groups? I would probably, I wish Adam was here now. He, I, I'm not aware of like super direct, uh, connect. well, yeah, I think there are connections. Okay. In terms of both having contacts with, but I don't, I, I don't know to the extent that much Dean fighters were brought into, uh, Kosovo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, another doc, sorry, both, both received oh, funding from Saudi Arabia. So in that kind of way, right. uh, there would be, yeah, the Islamic world was keen to pour money and supposedly Iran, although who knows what to believe when anyone says Iran funds anything because Iran, you know, if you stub your toe, probably Iran funded that, right? So sure. yeah, I never know of that one. <laughs> but Saudi Arabia certainly was funding um, the as a way of gaining a foothold in Bosnia and then with the Kosovo Liberation Army. 
Welcome to the portion of the show where I tell you how you can help support this content. The best way to do that, guys, is to go to libertyweekly.club. Yes, I haven't changed the URL yet, but this is my membership website that also functions as a newsletter. So if you go to that website, libertyweekly.club, hit the subscribe button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can subscribe for the free newsletter, and I send out a lot of free content. However, there is a section in those free emails that is premium and that premium section includes early access to my episodes access to bonus episodes and preprints of my articles before they're published at the libertarian institute or other outlets so again go to the website hit subscribe in the top right hand corner and sign up for that email list you go through the page here and you can see all the content that i've set out in the past there's a whole bunch of it guys and you get access to those previous emails that have gone out as well another way to help support me is to go to liberty or excuse me vitaldescent.com forward slash stitch fix and sign up through my link there you'll get 25 dollars off your first order and i will also get a 25 dollar credit guys i use this to buy my wardrobe i'm a i'm a father of two i have my own business i do this and i don't have time to go shopping can't haul the wife and kids around to have a leisurely shop for myself to pick these clothes so what Stitch Fix does is that they pick the clothes for you, they send them to you in fixes, and uh, it's really awesome stuff. These are all the pieces that I personally have bought myself. Uh, there's a lot of work stuff in there, but there's also casual stuff. I got an awesome, awesome uh, uh, plaid shirt that's in there, a flannel, really love that. I got this really cool sweatshirt. I got these awesome boots and a nice windbreaker, really good stuff. So go on over to vitaldescent.com forward slash stitch fix you can also get our vital descent really hard not to say liberty weekly vital descent merchandise with the cool awesome new logo from mises pieces you can get all these kinds of things all this merch you got coffee cups pint glasses sweatshirts premium t-shirts premium sweatshirts all that good stuff there at vitaldescent.com forward slash merch also guys i started a tiktok channel and i think that'll be really cool trying to get more eyeballs on this content and more views you can see it's um, already garnering a bunch of views where i do anti-war cartoon reviews and a lot of cool stuff there so vitaldescent.com forward slash tiktok is where you can find me my handle is at pat mcfarlane underscore the same as my twitter handle okay guys that's about it check out those things please help support this content help me pay my producer and uh, make the show better for you guys thanks one of the other documentaries that I, I mean, I've attempted to watch it maybe 16 times. It's called, uh, I think it's called Kosovo, the chronology of genocide. And mm -hmm. it, it has interviews with a whole bunch of figures, you know, Milosevic and Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright and some Russian officials as well. And then there was, um, I'm forgetting his name. I think he was a, an undersecretary who, who had his picture taken with the KLA very kind of earlier on in the 90s and it was a big controversy uh because um at that point it was just a blatant representation that the u.s that the u.s was involved in in the kla mm. and at that time they you know they hadn't undergone their transformation from you know their transformation to like a real legitimate military force um at least in the eyes of the the west um but the the other part i heard you know in, in terms of uh, these crimes against, I don't know if you could call them, these atrocities that took place. Milosevic would say, well, 
it wasn't the Serbian military that did that. It was groups, unofficial like groups beyond my control of just, uh, you know, third party actors. Have you heard that? Yeah, I have. Again, like the audience might correct me because I think the hardest thing of this whole thing is attributing atrocities. OK, right. Certainly can't say that. Oh, OK, on the military. Yeah. But they were the um, there were certain nationalist groups, certainly, but they were working hand in hand with the military. And I, I, as far as where the Serb military were acting brutally in, in both Bosnia and um, and Kosovo, it might be that the ultra Serb nationalists were, were the worst of the worst for committing yeah. atrocities. Um, so I, I tend not to like attempt to downplay um, the level of Serb committed atrocities because it's almost like, well, what if they were that high? Would that then justify a U.S. intervention? Um, so, uh, but what? What you don't hear on probably like documentaries you heard, or certainly from Bill Clinton or Madeleine Albright or the proponents of the um, of the humanitarian intervention, is the extent to which the US is fanning the flames in Bosnia by telling Igor Bevesic to not um, sign up for the the Cantonization Treaty, the Treaty of Lisbon, or um, then flying in the the Mujahideen, and also this is massive prepping and training and supplying of the KLA, who were a criminal organization at least until the late eighties. So suddenly they're not anymore. Suddenly they're freedom fighters, and um, yeah. So their their policy was to go in and shoot police officers and cause chaos in a, in Kosovo to provoke a response then against the civilian population from the Serb army, and that seemed to work quite effectively. They seemed good at provoking those kind of responses, and uh, which would result in massacres then. Um, the difficulty of talking about Serb ethnic cleansing in Kosovo and was this plan to drive um, all the Albanian Kosovars out, it, a lot of it was based on a document that seems to have been forged called Operation Horseshoe, which the German intelligence agency got from the Bulgarians. And you'll, you'll hear a lot of like pro-NATO people, pro-intervention people talking about this entirely uncritically, as if they uncovered the secret document. So the, it was called Horseshoe because the Serb forces would surround the Albanians like a horseshoe and drive them out. Um, that seems to be a forgery. Okay, there's certainly no proof that that was true. Um, what happened uh, was when when the airstrike started after the Ramburi agreements, we should probably, probably talk about them, uh, that allowed for a greater level of, um, of ethnic cleansing of Serbia by the, off of Kosovo by the Serbian forces then. Again, there's only water because if there's airstrikes falling on you, you're going to flee anyway. And the um, NATO did kill Albanian uh, Albanians by airstriking them. So that would be one reason to get out. There's like a similar number of people fled from Belgrade because of the airstrikes there. Um, it might be the case that the Kosovo Liberation Army pressured people to leave for photo opportunities. But I do think the most credible reason was the Serbian army, when the airstrikes were raining down, went on the rampage and tried really took it out on the um, Kosovo population. I, I think that's probably the case. It's, it's probably also the case that a lot of Serbs in Kosovo throughout the 70s and 80s had a hard time with certain elements of the Albanian population. There was certainly a drive going way, way back to take Kosovo and make it purely Albanian. So I do think it's coming in both directions. It's just at a certain point, the Serbian army had the majority of the guns. So, And then, of course, it just really makes you wonder exactly what the U.S. could do in that situation that wouldn't make the problem worse in some way. Um, and, and one thing... I think the the documentary, like a, chrono, a chronology of genocide, I, I don't know if towards the end it really focuses on the civilian casualties caused by the NATO air campaign. Uh, but, you know, of course, that's you you uh, you were talking earlier about, 
the West involvement and the United States involvement in in fanning the flames of the situation by arming groups and importing fighters and, and doing mm. things like that. Uh, but then the final involvement, just a direct bombing campaign that, of course, destroyed civilian areas. Yeah, it wasn't intended as a humanitarian thing. I don't think that's really plausible. Because everyone acknowledged, even Wesley Clark, who's the US commander there, said you can't really enforce like a humanitarian operation with airstrikes. It's just going to... So it really kicked off the... In the same way people say about the start of the First, Second World War, really enabled the Holocaust. If it, if it hadn't... So the justification of the Second World War is, of course, well, we had to stop Hitler, but actually it, it, it didn't. It enabled him to kill millions of Jews. And in the same way in Kosovo, um, if you accept that the Serbians were committing all the violence, and I'm not saying that's wrong, uh, but the airstrikes enabled it because all the international observers had to be withdrawn. It was very dangerous when NATO were dropping bombs on yet. So that enabled the justification from the like the case someone like Samantha Power, the great humanitarian interventionist, would make is that the Serbs were slowly, um, slowly ethnically cleansing Kosovo, and if we hadn't intervened, they would have got there in the end, and they would have killed a hundred thousand and driven out hundreds of thousands. So in that way, it's um, justified. That's that's pretty tenuous. Um, and the other, the other problem with it is when the um, the ethnic Albanians came back in, that they then ethnically cleansed. Kosovo of Serbians and 200, 250,000 Serbians had to flee. So it's not really incorrect to say NATO went to war to ethnically cleanse Kosovo of Serbs, because that was the result. They were, the, the ending agreement was Milosevic would withdraw um, his soldiers from Kosovo and peacekeepers would go in, but they didn't stop the ethnic cleansing then. It's probably also worth talking about, if, if this is probably time, the um, the way the thing kicked off in Kosovo, the you know, the Rambui um, Accords. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, I mean, just if there's any part of this which is just pure naked imperialism. So the the US delegation put down these accords that said that they would they, they were basically designed the, there's no way Yugoslavia at the time, Serbia, could have signed them. There's no way Mosvich could have agreed because it, it allowed uh, NATO peacekeepers uninhibited access to not just Kosovo, but the entirety of Serbia. And they could take over any kind of industry or transport system or telecommunication system without payment they would be immune from prosecution any serbian they employed would be immune from prosecution it was like a complete and total surrender and it's very clear they did that just so milosevic would reject it and the kosovo albanians would accept it and then they could say well but and it was all kept secret for months afterwards so to make milosevic look like really unreasonable partly there was, there was no way to negotiate a path out of this and in the end when uh, the when Milosevic did ultimately surrender, some people say it was under threat of like extensive bombing of Belgrade, whether that's true or not. Uh, but the, the the NATO troops did not get access to Serbia. So NATO just backed down on that thing. So they didn't need to hold, they'd already got what they wanted. Uh, so yeah, really, if there's one part of this which is just pure naked imperialism, that would be it, where the, the mask slips, if you like, and you can say, oh, okay, this has been the game all along. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we even still we have echoes of this happening right now um i'm just trying to look at yeah here's a report from the 26th of december talking about this the recent standoff and and to get into i mean to get into that the situation um of course since kosovo declared independence in 2008 there's a rump if you will of 50,000 serbians that still live in northern kosovo who rejected the secession um, and and still would like to remain part of Serbia, except they're on the wrong side of the line, right? 
And mm-hmm. so since 2008, um, Kosovo, the Kosovo government has been trying to basically I don't know, exercise its um, territorial and not territorial integrity per se, but to exercise its dominion over the the land that it claims and the people that it claims to be part of Kosovo, and including these 50,000 Serbians. So what the biggest fight has been um, that the Kosovar government is trying to force these 50,000 Serbians, Kosovar Serbians, to uh, adopt driver's licenses and license plates that are Kosovar and not uh, and not Serbian. And so there's been a big fight about this. I, I think even more so than just the logistics of it, it is the the symbology of it in the exercise of of dominion and authority over um, the Kosovar Serbians. The, and in in the past few months, you know, this the the institution of this license plate change has been postponed over and over and over again. And now you know, Kosovo, I think they postponed it from last fall and it was going to be imposed in December. Well, to, um, and I might be wrong about the timeline on that, but it came to a head just this December when a bunch of Kosovar Serbians set up roadblocks along major highways between Serbia and Kosovar, uh, in Kosovo rather. And there was a big standoff because of course it was inhibiting trade and, and doing all these uh, different things and the Serbian military activated and I believe they were asking for clearance either f- from the EU to send troops into Kosovo and so Kosovo then uh, pl- officially applies to join the EU and but but where this all comes through is the West uh, a stand down kind of came when it was reported that the West issued an ultimatum to Serbia and so we're really just in that same place. <laughs> Yeah, and this is going to, I mean, I just for the normal play thing, it could be a, a security concern as well because you can't drive around Kosovo and Serbia in, in the wrong area at the wrong number plates. It's dangerous. Like in, oh. like in the north of Ireland, it was dangerous to drive around certain places with southern plates, certainly until quite recently. And that's a, a thing there. So you see cars without any number plates on or cars that take their number plates off when they're going into a, a different area because it's there's quite like there's uh, foot patrols of citizens who try and keep people in their own area there and maybe inflict violence if you go into the wrong one because they, you know, it's of the history, you know, they're, they're, they're concerned about knowing who's who in the area. So that, that could be a factor with it. Of course. Yeah. And I, to correct, I think to, to clarify myself, uh, Vucic, the, uh, he's the leader of, of Serbia asked NATO's K4 peacekeepers for permission to deploy up to 1000 Serbian troops and police officers in Kosovo as it is entitled to do under UN Security Council Resolution 1244, which put an end to the NATO bombing of the former Yugoslavia in 1999. Um, of course, they these plans were resisted by the U.S. Um, so there were shots fired. On Sunday, K4 said shots had been fired near a NATO patrol in northern part of Kosovo, close to the roadblocks, adding that there were no casualties um, and stopped short of assigning blame. So, but Serbian media citing witnesses claim that the incident took place when Kosovo's special forces attempted to clear barricades near a town of uh, Zubin Patak. Um, so, I, I don't know. It's just, it, it seems like the situation is just very close to actual violence taking out. Of course, there was, you know, a bit of a resolution, but that doesn't mean that tensions are just going away. It'll, they'll crop up again. 
Yeah, there's no end. Like, I suppose you could say what could ultimately resolve the situation in Ukraine. I mean, I'm not sure, really. It just looks to me like these conflicts run through history and how do they stop? I mean, I suppose Britain and France, sorry, uh, France and Germany stopped because they were kind of brought inside Pax Americana. So yeah. it would become like two counties fighting now. But every time you bring countries inside the empire, you create another boundary of outsideness. And we're seeing that now. So Yugoslavia was the boundary and there's been a something of a piece there for 20 years because it was brought inside. But now Ukraine is a new boundary. So there's an to bring that inside and that instantly creates a tension where it's pulled in both directions. So yeah, it, to me, it, it doesn't look like there's a, a solution that's going to emerge for this anytime soon. Yeah, and then even even so, you know, in Ukraine and the 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 Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's so many people asking, what is the end game? You know, what does the end game look like? <laughs> and if if uh, neither side can be defeated, basically, because you know what's going to happen then? <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's the parallel with Bosnia, right? That the U.S. offered all this support to Bosnia and the victims of that were to the Islam. The, the Muslim government of Bosnia is a bigger bitch. And the victims of that were the Muslim people then, because when you put the backing of a superpower, you can just carry on and on and on. And that's like the case in uh, in Ukraine, of course, it would be thought to the last Ukrainian. Yeah. And so one thing that was poignant, I mean, that stuck out to me in To Kill a Nation was the author was talking about how even, even humanitarian interventionists admit that Yugoslavia did exist in a state of relative ethnic harmony. Um, now, I know there's a big thing about Tito's reign where um, he did suppress nationalist sentiment because there, he, he mm. basically governed in a feeling of, of Southern Slav brotherhood, right? But mm. when nationalist elements popped up, he would squash them. Um, yeah. But there does seem to be, you know, a lot of nostalgia for the times of Tito, I guess, because things were going well. But then at the same time, it did seem like, I mean, there's an argument to be made that this ethnic tension is the fault of intervention or at, at, at very least the fault of, you know, the the debt enslavement of the country by Western powers. Yeah, I think there's general agreement that accentuated. Additionally, the... Um the CIA kept a relationship with nationalist Croats throughout the Cold War. The idea being, we want Yugoslavia to stay together. However, if it goes behind the Iron Curtain at any point after Tito dies or whatever, then we have the hardcore nationalist yeah, to call upon to disrupt and break up the country. Yeah, it, It's similar. It's kind of a gladio operation. Like They maintained connections with the fascists initially in case Italy ever went communist. So they, they had that as an option. And it's not a coincidence that Yugoslavia broke down at the exact moment uh, it being unified stopped being useful to the American empire. So they were, those people were probably called upon at that point then to enact the, the breakdown. And it's just interesting, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself, of course, I wouldn't call myself an expert of, of all these different, um, I don't know if you want to call them pro like proxy kind of battles where, I mean, but you see the same formula play out across country and by country and country that the U.S. is involved in, that you have these sleeper agents or at least um, the United States allying with these certain factions within a country meant to dis destabilize that country um, or to act as sleepers in the event that we can call upon them when needed. I mean, I can think of, 
you know, you mentioned Gladio and then there, there's Ukraine, but we, we see it here in Bosnia and then we see it again. I mean, just all over the place, but specifically I've studied uh, the Uyghurs and uh, ETIM mm. in, 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 um, in Xinjiang and in Afghanistan a little bit too. Uh, but there's so many, I mean, pick your country. I wish I yeah. knew more about South America and Central America, um, those interventions too, because I'm sure those fingerprints are all over the place. Yeah, well, there is a Yugoslavia connection, actually. The, uh, the man the U.S. sent in as head of the, like, the peace monitors in Kosovo was a William Walker, who was a veteran of El Salvador. Where, <laughs> so, yeah. this is, I shouldn't laugh, but after yeah. the Rechat massacre, um, Walker talked about, yeah, I've seen terrible violence in Central America. But, you know, this is just scale. So, yeah, you've seen terrible violence because you were the one supporting that. You were yeah. supporting the El Salvadorian government against the rebels and supporting uh, the really the Nicaraguan Contras. You worked in Honduras and El Salvador supporting that. So they, they brought a veteran in of the pacification campaigns in Central America to run the show in Kosovo then. And it, it seems like there's always this element of... Um... I don't know, depending on who, which side the United States supports, we're only, we're only supposed to care about one side and have, and it seems like lately, at least with Ukraine, we're, we only care because it's, it's a white population, right? Uh, but I'm just trying to think too, that that doesn't stand up either, because I, I would assume that the, the Muslim Albanians are not white, right? Or maybe I'm ignorant. I don't know. No, they are fairly white. Yeah. Are they? Okay. Uh, they, Cause the, I'm. Not entirely sure where. I think ethnically they are European, going way back, and the they, they imported the um, the Islam from the Ottoman Empire there, and yeah, certainly true of the Bosnians. They they are very West, very European looking people. Um, where where I think the white thing falls down, I, I think it's definitely there to a degree, right? That in some ways we're hardwired to feel compassion for people who seem more similar to us for all sorts of evolutionary and group psychological reasons, but. Nobody cared about the people in eastern Ukraine prior to the Russian invasion. Like the fact that 14,000 of them had died since 2014, they were all white right. and nobody cared. So the idea that your race is somebody going to buy you protection from empire or buy you some extra sympathies, it's not true. Yeah, yeah. And and it is it is interesting. Like I, I'm not, of course, I'm not someone who really fixates on race because you know, like going through my liberal arts education at the at the University of Minnesota, it's like they it seems like they always try to give you a Marxian analysis of everything like, well, let's divide this piece and look at it from a gender you know, lens or a class lens or a racial lens or something like that. And mm. so I, I'm not saying that those analyses aren't appropriate um, ever. Or all the I'm not I'm not saying they're appropriate all the time, but it is interesting to take a look at. Well, there there is no there's no rhyme or reason behind it aside from who is going to give us leverage from the point of the West. Who's going to give us leverage, and who are we going to support that will support our interests? That's all it is. Yeah, and historically, all the races have been made into kind of white men when they've wanted to be brought on board. So the um, the Tutsi when the which one was it? The Belgians or the the Germans supporting them? Was the the Germans supporting them? They they elevated them to the level of white people in Rwanda. So it's, they they were, I see, yeah. And um, the the Japanese were were called honorary Aryans um, when Theodore Roosevelt favoured them and wanted to use them as a proxy force uh, to move into China. 
So yeah, you get you can get a promotion to being white if if needs be without disrupting the racial hierarchy. I, I suppose where the racial element does come in then is when it's convenient for your objectives in the area. And how do we how do we sell how do we sell the intervention to the public, the public that cares or knows about it? Um, and the best way to do that is to make whoever we're fighting alongside of or or aiding appear more like them. Yeah, and I think that has to do with wealth as well. Like I actually think we tend to think people who are wealthy are more like us. By wealthy, I don't mean millionaires. I just mean people who have a, a good standard of living. Because certainly uh, when the empire goes to war with impoverished countries, there's definitely a feeling of, wow, you know, what are the lives worth anyway? They're not you know, having a good time, are they? So might as well try and break a few eggs and make an omelet out of it. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's a factor. That's just an observation of it. So, I, I mean, in a way, I, I hope that we've given the listeners kind of a crash course on the whole situation that, you know, that the audience can can watch this and have a better idea of where this puzzle piece fits in. Uh, but to I guess to zoom out a little bit and, and I I don't know how much you've paid attention or focused on kind of the global geopolitical picture, but I've I've talked, you know, in the last few interviews just about how there just seems to be escalation everywhere. And it seems that there's so many different fronts opening up along this this global Cold War. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a bit too big a question for me in some ways, but I, I suppose you see the reassertion of Russia and China as a rising world power. And then you're seeing that period of a monopolar world order kind of slipping away. And that's giving rise to all sorts of tension. I, I suggest that's the overall overarching yeah. narrative yeah yeah it, that's kind of been my thought too i mean focusing on of course there's the situation in ukraine i mean it was ukraine and then china well iran was always there um but it was those three and then now there's it just seems like this could be another front or flashpoint that's opening up and and with everything you see you know finland and sweden their bids to join nato extends the front by literally thousands of miles um i don't know it's it's an interesting time to live in i think on a I mean, tell me if you agree or disagree with this i think on a level of human consciousness something's shifted in the the cynicism of warfare and the kind of anti-nuclear we should move towards peace that existed in the cold war where there was more of a sense of us and them with the government like the government was a bad entity over there that was doing things like smashing up vietnam and we, the people, are over here and want them to stop doing that. That seems to have diminished, right? And there's definitely been a cultivated sense that we're on the same team now and we're going out to create peace and justice and harmony in the world. And actually, it would be a good thing if these military alliances like NATO expanded because they are now the good guys. We are now the good guys. So that, and that, Yugoslavia is a massive part of that because a lot of the anti war, like actually, it was far more pushed by the Democratic Party than by the um, Republicans. And in Britain, it's really when the Labour Party came in in 97, that was the um, the Kosovo intervention. And with Labour, a lot of the people pushing it had been really anti-war in the past. Elements of the Green Party were won over in Germany. So to me, this is this fascinating thing of the, the impulse towards anti-war, the thing that makes you put down the sword, this desire that recognition, say, that we should actually have enough caring for people who are far away and look different from us, not to go and kill them and take their stuff, right? which is maybe that's not an idea that has always been through human history. I don't think 
chimpanzees necessarily have that kind of moral dilemma when they're going off and having wars with all the, all the little tribes of chimps. And um, but we 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 have that in some way, and it comes through in all sorts of religious sentiment and uh, like brothers in Christ or all the kinds of moral philosophy of humans having innate rights. And that at some point then this wonderful impulse turns toxic and it makes us pick the sword back up. And now we're going to go on a crusade again. And of course, the imperialists, we're arm in arm now. They're, they're, so the, the anti-war people are in some sense co-opted by an extension of their own ideology. And that, I find that kind of fascinating. And Yugoslavia is really the, the big turning point in that for coming out of the Cold War and needing a new justification for war that isn't based on fighting the Soviets and, and national security. I think you're exactly right. And I think um, it, it just it is interesting to see how and for someone like me who wasn't really paying attention until three years ago or maybe, you know, five years ago um, to see that this really is another chapter of a very long story that in some ways it's not the definitive beginning point, but really started at with World War One. And now it's just a continuation. Mm. And, and the one thing that, you know, if, if you read Justin Raimondo's piece in the beginning, there was Kosovo. What he was writing against then was this new world war, this new Cold War with Russia. Really a continuation of the recreating. The enemy was killed dead in, you know, with the end of the USSR. But now we've reanimated and recreated it because we need an, an enemy and it's going forward towards this this World War Three, and the real there's a real thing that you touched on there with the kind of a co-opting of those anti-war forces, right? Because anecdotally speaking, um, I had this thoroughly enjoyable conversation with um, a high school friend of mine's dad. You know, we we went over. He's got like a bar. My friend has a bar in his backyard. This happened this summer. And so we all go and hang out there on Friday nights. And and one night his dad came over and, of course, we started talking politics and about the war. And he's he's more of like um, and he's a punk rocker from the 70s, like mm. loves the Ramones, hung out with the Ramones on a tour bus and stuff like that. Um, and he he's a he's a he's a liberal. He's a Democrat, more progressive. And he of course hated George W. Bush and the war in Iraq and all those kind of things. But we got to talking about Ukraine and he, I was wearing my antiwar.com hat and I'm, I'm the peacenik hippie guy. And he's saying, now, listen, I know everything about war is bad. You know, like it's, it's, it's not the politicians that have to go and fight. It's the poor people and things like that, but we have to intervene in this. Uh, and war is wrong and it shouldn't happen, but this one we have to. Mm. And that's always the line, you know. I'm not trying to rag on him, by the way. I, it was a really good conversation, even though we disagreed. But Yeah, and I think it, it has shocked people in Europe because there's almost a sense in Europe of it being a little fortress, okay, where we have pushed violence to the outside now and we've gotten over our history. So I think it affronts that sense people have. Like Putin's ruined that. He smashed up Europe. Right. And yeah, we do have this. There is something that I think overwhelms our rational impulse. And it just goes into something very instinctual and tribal about I am being threatened of violence now, even though it's like thousands of miles away. Like I, I'm being so I know that every other war has been wrong, but this one, yeah. I'm actually not running on my rational analysis. I'm running on my tribal instinct to pick up a spear and defend. And that's because there is this reversion back to 
uh, and that's how war is able to reinvent itself, even amongst people who are cynical about all the other wars. Right. Yeah. And I think it's quite quite right what you say about um, James Corbett on his uh, World War One documentary said put it quite poetically: the, "We are living in the smoldering crater of World War One." And I think that's quite true. It does seem like this point around which history pivots, and where there was a real choice. Right. That didn't have to happen. Britain didn't have to get involved. Russia didn't have to mobilize. The whole thing could have just not happened, and we'd be living in a completely different world. Uh, but it set off forces with ultimately the Nazis and then the Soviet Russia that by the time that wound down, you could say World War One really ended in the 90s with the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but there's been such huge juggernauts of military industrial complexes growing up through, if you think about it that way, like a, what would that be, a nearly 80-year war, now it's unstoppable. Now this juggernaut, we can't go back to the world of the late 19th or the mid 18th and 19th century of like where classical liberalism was on the ascendancy. It's we've created a monster. It really is just a, a giant tragedy. I mean, and um, you know, Justin talking about how this is predicting, you know, this new Cold War with Russia and China and doing it at the end of the 90s as he was and and saying that this ultimate final clash is the thing that antiwar.com was started to prevent. And now I just get, you get the sense of fate in history and I get goosebumps when I think about it, how this is that final moment, or at least we're flirting with it. It feels like it, you know, um, it's just incredible. And um, another thing I wanted to mention too, that you kind of keyed on was this new arms race that's happening. And, and we see nations like Japan, uh, being basically turned into uh, an extension of the U.S. military itself. I mean, when Japan is rearmoring, and that, in a sense, is being celebrated by the United States, you have to know that something is really... I mean, the United States took over Japan, essentially, and imposed a constitution on it, and it was written in the constitution that Japan cannot be have an aggressive military force, or basically a mil much of a military force at all, and now we're just discarding that. And I think that very fact should be alarming to everyone. It, it's actually always been a bit of a myth about Japan not having a military. I didn't oh, know God, this until I, I researched um, Japan for a series I was doing looking at well, the origins of the U.S. empire. And what, what I was looking at really was how Theodore Roosevelt um, co-opted Japan to encourage them to be an empire in the Far East. Right? Maybe you consider them West, I don't know. But uh, so using them as a proxy force to stop Russian intervention into China. And that's what the Russo-Japanese war was about. So the, the British allied with Japan too. And that was really breaking a precedent in Britain at the time because they didn't like entangling alliances. And for the US, it was impossible So to, to go before Congress and suggest an entangling alliance at that point. So Theodore Roosevelt engaged in secret diplomacy because the big prize is always China. It's always the Chinese markets. And um, they'd taken the Philippines with the idea of controlling the sea lanes out to China. And Japan was going to be the proxy force that kept the, the Russians out. Um, and then Japan got above itself and thought that they were going to be a real empire in the Far East. And that then comes into the... Uh, the Second World War, when they had to be disciplined, and then they went back to being kind of an ally. But the the, the actual thing Japan does is it spends one percent of its GDP. It's limit, it was limited to one percent of its GDP on the military, but one percent of the Japanese GDP is a really big number because <laughs> they're very sure, economically yeah. successful, and it still puts them inside having one of the top ten biggest militaries in the world. 
Um, and they, they do a lot of euthanism. So they'll, they won't have tanks. They'll have like, uh, armored personnel vehicles with gun mounted on it or something that they, they have a lot of euphemisms to cover up for. There is definitely a reluctance in the Japanese population to engage in warfare, but they do have, have always had a more substantial military than, um, than, yeah, than it's been credited for. And it's not surprising that the US would swing back into an alliance with Japan. And maybe one day in another 50 years, we'll see them getting too big and it will swing back again. There'll be conflict between the US and Japan because the US can't exert enough of its own to really control uh, East Asia. So they need a, a proxy force there, but the proxy force goes out of control every now and then. Yeah, no, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you can clarify that for me too. I, I guess like what I'm referring to is, you know, re- it may very well be that it was it's a misconception that Japan was disarmored after World War II. I guess what I'm specifically referring to is the lar- the inflated or the the enlarged military budget that's I think has been approved uh in Japan just this week. Um now Right, I don't know right. But but I don't know if I don't know how much of an enlargement that is in the general context of post World War II, but I was assuming that it is a large step, but I guess I'm wrong about that. No, it could well be. It could, could well be they're going up one percent of GDP. I mean, I imagine that would be very much to the liking of weapons manufacturers if Japan was going to suddenly spend two percent of GDP in this military, that would be yeah, a big boost to Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all the rest. Yeah, I should I should have that. Dave DeCamp just talked about it yesterday on on antiwar.com news. So it, I, it's uh, it's up there, uh, but the details kind of evade me. Um, but there really is too, you know, the specter of Hitler too that's been brought out, like it is carted out all the time, but it still is there because there's this founding, you know, there's this huge generational myth in the United States that, you know, World War II was the just war. Mm. And and I, I suppose you grew up in the UK, I, I assume, right? Yeah. So, and I mean, I'm sure over there, growing up there's the huge mythos of you know the proper role i mean i can't i can't tell you how large that is a part of at least my generation growing up is venerating world war ii and putting it on that pedestal yeah well, i'm actually just outside the uk but it's same same kind of education oh, yeah, okay. and um yeah interestingly world war one by the time i got to high school was very criticizable Okay, there was a kind of anti-war movement in the 60s, a lot of left-wing academics came in, and World War One was like presented to us as a great disaster. From what I understand, World War One does not loom as large in the American psyche, anything like as much as World War Two. You're right, yeah. Um, but World War Two definitely absolutely the justification. And it, it really takes on mythic proportions, I think, where Hitler becomes kind of like Satan for a post-Christian age. So who he was as a man, that no one even you know goes there. It's just the and every time someone does something bad, you're not right. They, they, the comparison is Hitler. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm not just talking about uh, Putin level bad or Pol Pot level bad. I'm talking about like some woman kicked a cat uh, and they got on the news a while ago, and she was considered to be worse than Hitler. So, so it's just right. like you can see that this is a mythology that we've uh, we've imbued, and obviously very disconnected from history. Well, yeah, World War II is this weird period where the United States seems to have gone to war on behalf of the Soviet Union to turn China communist and give Stalin Eastern Europe. So yeah, it's bizarre. This other thing I wanted to to kind of touch on too, um, 
I've had this thought that the so objectively speaking, as objective as you can get, many experts are warning that we are closer to nuclear war now than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Biden has said that. But there are others who have said that we are closer to nuclear war now than we were even during the nuclear, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think that would make us closer to nuclear war now than it ever, than ever, than since, I don't know, we actually dropped nuclear bombs on, on Japan. Mm. We as in me are, you know, Americans. Mm. Uh, but there's this general sense, right, that I'm, I'm, there's a, there's just a lack of consciousness and awareness among the general American population. And maybe you can uh, give your side of it that we're that close. And, and one of the things is, is my grandfather was part of the, the, the national guard in the civil defense force in the United States. And my grandma just gave me a whole manila envelope full of pamphlets and handouts that he got educating the public about the risk of nuclear war saying where, you know, all of these uh, fallout shelters were, there were millions of fallout shelters in Wisconsin, the state where I live and instructions on, on making home fallout shelters and what to do. And, you know, there's the, the tuck and cover and um, mm. all that stuff. It's so absent right now. And I wonder, you know, what was the reason why it was injected so powerfully into the public consciousness during the cold war and it's absent now and why is that yeah it's interesting because the one thing you can say is that it's absent like obviously i wasn't walking around in 1960s and through to the 80s but it seems to be something people were like really concerned about and scott horton did some interesting interviews a few months ago uh, with someone involved in the nuclear efforts to de-escalate the nukes in the 80s and talking about how Ronald Reagan really came on board with that idea and the limitation treaties that were put in were very effective and really could have gone all the way. That fear seems to be gone from the public consciousness. That, and maybe it's just an apathy that it hasn't happened, so it's not going to happen, but it's not there in the same way. And there isn't this active push that, hey, we should be moving to a, a nuclear-free world. That that just doesn't seem is definitely an apathy around that now is that an engineered apathy uh, was the the hype around it in the 60s and 70s was that um also engineered um i don't know i know that uh, i can't think of the film's name but there was a film uh, produced in britain that was actually uh, banned from tv for it was considered too disturbing of what britain would look like if nukes started landing and yeah, I, I think that i watched that <laughs> yeah i think there was um there was an effort by the government to suppress it because uh, there was a strong, well, precisely because there was a strong anti-nuclear movement in Britain and they thought it would add to it. And they thought they want the American nukes out um, and you know, these things are too dangerous to keep around. And I know that, you know, in my time in Germany, um, at least there's a huge anti-nuclear movement in Germany. I think it focuses more on nuclear power plants, but I don't know if it also shares the the same I guess I don't know how much of a nuclear armed state Germany is, if they have any nukes or if they're just in the, the nuclear sharing program with, with the United States. I, just I think, think it's just the, I don't, they don't have any independently. Um, I would imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine the US houses them there. And I, I would imagine too that, or at least you would hope or think that the, the anti-nuclear movement in, in Germany would object to that and actively be working against NATO storing or, you know, the US storing nuclear hmm. missiles in Germany. Um, yeah, it's interesting. 
So, well, hey, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm going to have to have you back on again to tackle another topic. I'd be delighted. I would be delighted to. Well, just sorry, just yeah. on the nuclear point yeah, before yeah. we go, I would feel remiss if I didn't mention the NATO bombing of Serbia, uh, Bosnia, Serbia, and Kosovo uh, used depleted uranium, oh, depleted yes. uranium shells. And that's, that's caused, I mean, I don't think anyone can come close to estimating the destruction that caused, and also the destruction of the infrastructure, but there were around 500 civilians directly killed by NATO bombing. And there's an estimate of like 10,000 deaths from cancer since then in the area. So I, I would feel remiss not mentioning that. And it sort of fits in well with this question of uh, nuclear and so on. So similar uh, similar to Iraq on a smaller scale than Iraq, but similar. Yeah, there's uh, it's a real problem in, in Serbia now. Yeah, of course. No, and is there is there anything else that you wanted to make sure you brought up before we, we take off? No, I don't think so. I think maybe, um, I don't know if you put book recommendations in the, in the comments, but I would say this is one area where I don't think there's one book you can read to um, to understand Yugoslavia, because it, it, in addition to it being an imperial project to dismantle Yugoslavia, there are a, everyone has a, a perspective and there's a lot of ethnic tensions going on. But I would recommend documentaries like Weight of Chains, uh, Michael Parentini's book, To Kill a Nation, uh, to get to get a left-wing perspective for the economics, there's actually a lot of good articles on uh, Mises.org looking at uh, the economics and the role of the IMF in the breakdown of Yugoslavia. Yeah, I, I really, I really, um, I appreciated the "To Kill a Nation" and getting the left-wing perspective on it. But I was thinking, and I haven't read any of the Mises articles, but I was thinking, well, I wonder, you know, how much of this is due to to the lending boom? <laughs> how much of yeah, that's where I find agreement between left and right. Yeah, uh, that the, the the lending boom and the the IMF, um, because left and right might dislike the IMF for different reasons. So the left dislike it because it, it cuts social spending, and the right dislike it because it increases taxes. But there is an agreement that yeah, the IMF was terrible for Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, hopefully that's common ground to find um, mm. find a way to go forward to oppose these kind of measures. Mm. So, uh, well, do you want to tell the audience where they can find your work? Yeah, thank you. So my website is deepstateconsciousness.com and the podcast is the Deep State Consciousness Podcast. So and it's called that. So that's a, a sticking together of the term deep state uh, to refer to deep political state. And I also do some metaphysical stuff about the nature of consciousness. So that just to stick those two things together. So uh, it was kind of a play on those words. And um, as I mentioned, I'm doing a series on sort of geopolitical history of the 20th century um, I'm going to be doing some sort of looking at the concept of humanitarian intervention. I thought anarchism out now and then. So um, I, I I know people's ears are full of the multitude of different podcasts, but I do, you know, people would consider subscribing. Really appreciate that. Makes it a sort of worthwhile my my effort. So yeah, that's where you can find me, deepstateconsciousness.com. Do you have um like are you on YouTube and Odyssey and stuff like that? Yeah, all, all those things. So the, the website has a link to all the different platforms okay. on, but all the it should be on any podcatcher. If you type in the Deep State Consciousness podcast, it should come up. And um, yeah, and then YouTube and Odyssey and Rumble, BitChute, all of those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. And I I, I have to apologize because I neglected to include Deep State Consciousness on on the video version here. It just says the Darkened Hour. Um, but the darkened hour, yeah, I do that with Adam. So the, I put the darkened hour stuff um, onto onto deep state conscious as well. But the darkened hour, I I do, yeah, join Adam, and um, that's a bit more in depth. I try and do my stuff. I try and do everything that if I was having a conversation with someone down the pub, 
uh, that's the level I'm going for. Whereas Adam, it's like just you know, you're off the deep end there. <laughs> yeah. All sorts of nuance about 9/11. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. So, okay. Well, thanks for joining me, Richard, and uh, we look forward to next time. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's great.